Welcome to Partnering Leadership, conversations with leading influencers in the greater Washington, D.C. region and global thought leaders, helping you align better with your purpose, grow professionally with meaning, and have a greater impact. For additional leadership insights and bonus content, visit us at PartneringLeadership.com. Now here's your host, Mahan Tavakoli. Welcome to Partnering Leadership. I am really excited to be welcoming Joe Gardamal. Joe serves as a managing director in the Washington, D.C. office of Alvarez and Marsal. Joe has over 30 years experience in accounting, including in forensic accounting. And right now, he is the court-appointed independent monitor over GPB Capital Holdings, which is a private equity enterprise with over $1.8 billion in capital raised. Joe also served in the U.S. Army. He's a veteran of the Iraq War, where as a major, he commanded a company in the 9th Psychological Operations Battalion. For that, he received the Bronze Star and the Iraq Campaign Medal with two campaign stars. And his unit received the Navy Presidential Unit Citation. Joe is a real hero and a wonderful leader. I really enjoyed this conversation with him, and I am sure you will too. I also really enjoy hearing from you. Keep your comments coming. Mahanadmahantavikoli.com. There's also a microphone icon on partneringleadership.com. You can leave voice messages for me there. Love hearing your voice messages. And when you get a chance, don't forget to do two things. One, Follow the podcast, that way you will ensure that you will be first to be notified of new releases. Tuesdays with Greater Washington, D.C. DMV changemakers like Joe, and Thursdays with global thought leaders, primarily leadership book authors. And two, when you get a chance, those of you that listen to this on Apple, scroll down, leave a rating and review that will help more people find these conversations and benefit from them. Now, here is my conversation with Joe Gardamal. Joe Gardamal, my friend, welcome to Partnering Leadership. I am thrilled to be having this conversation with you. Thank you. First, would love to know whereabouts you grew up and how your upbringing impacted the kind of person and leader you've become. Well, first, the story is not that interesting, but uh, I was born in, in New Orleans and I was raised first in the city and then in the suburbs until I went to college. My parents were both New Orleans natives, as were their parents. I guess my grandfather was from St. Martinville from Western Louisiana. My mom was a school secretary. My dad was an enlisted man in the Army. And we were fortunate that he was in New Orleans for his entire career. He was an active National Guard soldier. And so we grew up in the suburbs and had a typical upbringing. So growing up in New Orleans, you go to Catholic school. That's a given. And in that time, in the late 60s, early 70s. So now you decided to go to Loyola, which to a certain extent might make sense, but why did you want to study business administration and then focus on accounting too? Sure. My parents made sacrifices to send me and my younger brother to Catholic school for elementary school and for high school. We both went to one of the competitive high schools in New Orleans. So unlike much of the rest of the world where you compete to get into the great colleges, in New Orleans, you compete to get into the great high schools. And I was fortunate enough to get into a school called Brother Martin. I'm still involved with the alumni today, 35 or more years, 37 years after I graduated. I had always planned to stay in New Orleans. My family had been there for many generations. I had no expectation that I would ever leave. 
And so in New Orleans, Loyola, a Catholic university, is a very good place for local people to go. And I also had an academic scholarship there. So fortunately, it paid all my tuition that helped me make that decision, which was much easier. And I majored in business. I hate to say this because people will hear this, but I needed to get a job and I only had four years. There were not then, and there are not now, unemployed accountants. And so I majored in accounting, figuring that I could do the things that I might be passionate about during my off hour. And so 33 years later, here I am, a CPA. Absolutely, Joe. I had a conversation a couple of months back with John V. Meyer, who became the global chairman eventually of KPMG. And that's exactly the reason why he pursued accounting too. And he said he gave that advice to his kids, but none of them followed it. And that's why when they graduated from college, they were like, dad, now what do we do? (laughs) (laughs) My oldest has followed me. He's studying accounting. So I'm very, very happy about that. Yeah. So now you mentioned your oldest. One of the fun things about you is that you have three sons that you adore, a son in college, son in high school, and a son in kindergarten. I do. Yes. I'm very proud of all three of them. Yeah. My oldest, Joseph, he's finishing his sophomore year at the University of Maryland studying accounting. And my middle son is graduating from Churchill High School here in Potomac, Maryland. And he's going on to Northeastern where he got some nice scholarship money. Very excited about that. My baby Rohan goes to kindergarten at the Catholic school around the corner from our house. And fortunately, he's been able to go to school in person all year this year. And I think that's made a real difference. So we're very happy about that. Yeah, another element that is beautiful about you, Joe, is that you truly embrace diversity with all of your relationships. I do. We have an interesting family. So my older boys are both Jewish. Their mom was Jewish. And my wife is Hindu. And Rohan, the baby, and I are both Catholic. So when we introduce ourselves to you, it's two Catholics, two Jews, and a Hindu, which sounds like it's a joke about going into a bar (laughs) or synagogue or something, but not quite. It's our family, and we love it. It gives us the opportunity to celebrate a lot of different things and a lot of different paths to the same place. And it gives you the ability, Joe, very effectively to empathize and connect with people of all backgrounds. Now, I'm curious, right into college early on, you decided to join the army. Why was that? I I did. So my father was in the army from the, well, geez, from 1958, I think he, he started. So he served for 30 plus years. And his father was in the infantry in World War I and served in France during the late stages of World War I. And all of my father's brothers and brothers-in-law and, and most people in the family had served in the military, either in World War II or Korea. And, and it was just something I always wanted to do. I wanted to be like those guys. I had a great deal of respect for them. And frankly, I wanted to be like them. And so after my first year of college, I joined the Army. And did you expect at that point that you would ever end up serving in a war zone? Well, I don't know. That was 1985. And Reagan was president and the military was being built up again for the first time in in 20 plus years. And it was a great time to join. I think we might have thought we would fight the Soviets one day. It didn't turn out that way. But yeah, I I didn't really have any expectations when I joined one way or the other. And eventually, so you ended up serving in Iraq, commanding a company in the 9th Psychological Operations Battalion. What was that and what was your mission? Sure. It was an interesting way I got there. I served for the first 14 years in the field artillery, which is a little bit different than psychological operations, much more kinetic. 
But when I moved to D.C. in 1998, I found a psychological operations unit in the area and joined that. And those units are part of Army Special Operations Command, priority money and training and stuff like that. So it was pretty high speed, and I was attracted to the unit because of that. Ultimately, after September 11th, actually, my second son is a September 11th baby, which is a different story. But after September 11th, we knew we would get mobilized. We got mobilized about a year later. And we spent some time at Fort Bragg, and then we deployed to Kuwait. And my unit was initially assigned to support the 1st Marine Division, notwithstanding the fact that we were in the Army. Ultimately, we supported all of the 1st Marine Expeditionary Force, a larger unit for the first phases of the war. So essentially, we ended up in the desert in February. We crossed the border on the first day of the war, March 20th or 21st of 2000. Now, you were also awarded the Bronze Star, and your unit received the Navy Presidential Unit Citation. What was that for? So I was awarded the Bronze Star because my soldiers performed very, very well while we were overseas. We were the only PSYOP unit supporting the MEF. So essentially, if you think about the liberation of Iraq, there were two major units. There were some army forces and then there were marine forces. And we supported all the marine forces. And my guys did some incredible things. I have a picture on my wall across from me of one of my soldiers on the cover of Newsweek on the, the day that the Statue of Saddam came down in Inferno Square in April of 2003. And those guys just did an amazing job supporting the Marines and, and protecting, frankly, Iraqi people by helping them get out of the way of some of the fighting through our broadcast and our messaging. And the work those guys did really reflected on the unit and resulted in me receiving the award. Said like the true humble leader that you are, Joe, obviously leadership makes a difference. They deserve the credit for a lot of the work. So does their leader. Look, frankly, my job was to keep them as safe as I could and focused on the mission as best as I could and providing the best support to the Marines that we could. And that's what we did. And that's what everybody did in the unit. And I think the way the Marines thought about us after that reflects on that. I, Jim Mattis was our division commander, the former Secretary of Defense, one of the men I most admire in my life. And, and he was very complimentary to my soldiers when we left the unit in late 2003. Now, Joe, it's very difficult for a lot of different reasons to transition back after having been in conflict zone into the professional world again. How were you able to transition? So that's a great question behind because I love to talk about this. People in the media and in other places, you hear a lot about post-traumatic stress disorder. And a lot of guys and women really suffered as a result of their service in the war. They experienced things that were really, really terrible and things that take sometimes a lifetime to overcome, sometimes they never overcome. But there's another facet of, of that service that doesn't get talked about very much in the media or any place else. And General Mattis called this post-traumatic stress growth. And he's absolutely right. I have found that since I've been back, many things that were hard for me before, conflict type stuff, for example, are not very hard anymore. I think that experience gives you an appreciation for the lives that we have, for the opportunities we have, for all the amazing things we have every day that most people never get. And it makes some of it much easier. You want to fight with me at work? You want to yell at me? Okay, knock yourself out. It's not a big deal. And so I think that post-traumatic stress growth 
is something that really helps people perform after that type of experience. What a beautiful perspective on it, Joe. I'm a big advocate for anti-fragility, which is becoming stronger as a result of the breakage and becoming more capable. So it seems like you have used those experiences and lessons learned in conflict to become even more resilient and effective leader back in the professional environment. It's interesting you just used the word anti-fragility because I don't even know what that means, frankly. But, but what I know is that we learn from our experiences and they can either have a negative impact on you or a positive impact. If they have a negative impact on you, you haven't learned anything. You haven't grown from them. And that's what it's all about. I, I try to teach my kids the same thing. Life's not always easy, but every day is a lesson one way or the other. I try to live that way. Don't succeed every day, but I try. That's fantastic. Now, also in the transition that you had professionally from New Orleans to DC, there were a lot of bumps along the road the first few years too. There were. When I moved to DC in 1998, I, I moved here. I'd been working in New Orleans as a CPA and spent a couple of years in government there. And the economy there is just not what it is in the DC region where I live now. So I moved here looking for economic opportunity and had lots of those opportunities presented to me. In 98, the market was great and five firms interviewed me and I walked, went home after a week with five job offers and I accepted one and then I ended up here. And what I didn't have was anybody who I knew. <laughs> I knew about two guys in DC, one guy who I'd been in the army with and one guy who I went to school with. It took some time to redevelop the social networks and the professional networks that I had in New Orleans from having lived there all my life. The other side of it, though, is you might hear that I speak with something of an accent. This accent in New Orleans identifies me with a particular group from a particular part of town, which isn't the best part of town. Here in D.C., people think I'm from Boston or New York, and it's an advantage. So, <laughs> there are positives and negatives to making that change. And it was tough, but some of it wasn't tough. Yeah, that's wonderful. But through that experience, eventually you ended up at Alvarez and Marcel when it, effectively it was a startup in DC. Why would you leave more established firm to go to what would be a startup? I don't know. I was a partner in the consulting group at a large law firm in DC. And one of my friends who I hadn't seen in a while called me one day to have lunch. And he wanted to have lunch at the Mayflower. And at the time, geez, I want to say we were both about 40. And so we were about 20 years too young to be having lunch at the Mayflower. No offense to the Mayflower. So I showed up at lunch and it was an ambush. And it was my friend and a recruiter for Alvarez and Marcel. And he was very, very gregarious and a fun guy. But I was offended and I walked away. A few months later, they, they approached me again. And it was a good time to take a risk. So I went from a big fancy partner office in the Warner Building in D.C., into some shared space where I had a table and a chair and I literally did not have a drawer to put my pencils in. And it was a great decision. The firm has grown from a thousand people to almost 6,000 people in the 15 years I've, I've been there. And in DC, we've grown from just a few folks to about 150 or so now. It was a risk. Accountants don't like to take risks, but I did that time and it was the best risk I've ever taken. And over 15 years, you've tackled some major cases that have exposed significant public corruption, including one that became really famous with uh, Rita Cronwell. 
Yes, yes. So I work in really two areas. I do forensic accounting investigations. Oftentimes they involve fraud. Sometimes it's accounting stuff with the SEC, for example. But yeah, the Crunwell case was an interesting one. This has been profiled on American Greed and lots of Wall Street Journal articles about it. But essentially, the treasurer of a small town in Illinois was able to steal close to $50 million by creating false invoices and was able to maintain the fraud for many years before it was detected. Ultimately, the outside accountants ended up paying a significant amount to settle the case. And I worked for one of the parties through whom much of the money flowed. But yeah, it's a very interesting case. Yeah, and currently, Joe, you're serving as court-appointed independent monitor over GPB Capital Holdings, and they have over $1.8 billion in capital that they had raised. What is that case all about? Sure. So what I can say about it is this. GPB Capital Holdings raised about $1.8 billion from 17,000 retail investors. So people, essentially families and private investors. And that money was used to purchase a large number of assets. Dozens of car dealerships is one of the assets there. And in early 2001, the CEO of the company was arrested and charged with certain financial crimes. The company was charged civilly by the Securities and Exchange Commission with securities law violations. And as part of that process, the company and the SEC negotiated, and ultimately, the company consented to having me appointed as the monitor. So essentially, what my team and I do is we provide oversight under the terms of an order issued by the court for the company's operations in order to protect those 17,000 limited partners. And it must be very rewarding for you. This is just one example of a lot of work that you have continually done over the years where you serve as an advocate for the investors and people whose money would be at risk without you being on their side. That's right. And in this case, this is really interesting. In the week when I was appointed as a monitor, there were a number of articles in the Wall Street Journal and other media about it. And my wife and I had dinner with some friends that weekend. And the husband had read one of the articles. And it turns out that he and his father had invested money in GPB Capital, a significant amount of money in GPB Capital. And I say this as I do the work. I think about my friend and his father when I think about how to protect those limited partners. It's not abstract to me. I know who those people are. It's important to represent their interests and try to protect them as best we can. Now, I know every job has its hardship assignments, and you've had to travel over the years quite a bit for your job, testified as an expert witness to U.S. district courts. And I understand you had a hardship assignment for the Supreme Court of Bermuda. (laughs) I, I did. This was some years ago. This was a big fraud case. In fact, we had a witness who was killed during the course of this case. It involved corruption in Latin America. It was, in fact, a hardship assignment. I stayed in a really nice hotel in Hamilton, Bermuda. And over the course of two weeks or so, I was sequestered from the rest of the folks on our team. I got to spend two weeks in a hotel essentially by myself in Bermuda. So it could have been fun, but it really wasn't. I'm sure people buy that story. I used to have to go to Bermuda quite often, Joe. And I would tell people they were business trips and I would be staying in Hamilton at the hotel, typically Hamilton Princess. And it didn't matter, just the weather, the beautiful flowers, the smells off of the ocean. 
I think there is a reward in that. I don't know. You know, the trial in this case apparently was too big to be held in the Supreme Court facility. So it was held in a Salvation Army Hall in Hamilton and only one floor, only the courtroom had air conditioning. And this was in the summer. I've been to better places to try. <laughs> I'd love to go back on vacation. I have yet to go there on vacation, but one day we're going to make it happen. It is a gorgeous island and wonderful people there too. Now, Joe, if you were asked to give advice to your younger self, signing up for the army early on and going through school at Loyola to become impactful as you have been and a significant leader in the community, what advice would you give to your younger self? I'd give myself two pieces of advice. The first piece of advice would be to calm down. Everything that goes wrong is not the end of the world. This is a long game. I've been doing this now for 33 years. And, and, and if, if I had not worried so much about some of the small things earlier on in my career, I think it would have been an easier ride. And so I, that's one piece of advice to just calm down, relax. And the second piece of advice I think this sort of goes with that is when you start something, think about what the objective is. Where do I want to be at the end of this process? And if I do that, then I can modify my behavior on the journey and, and focus on that endpoint rather than getting really excited about a bump here or a bump there when I know I'm getting to that objective. So those are really the two things I think I've learned over all these years. May not be very much, but, but at least it's something I think. They're significant both with respect to where you want to head and also the calmness that you need in putting things in perspective as you head in that direction. Now, are there also leadership resources that you find yourself often recommending for people to become more impactful leaders? I am not a guy who's read a lot of business books, and I don't frankly focus very much on that side of things. What I have learned is been mostly learned by watching people, by watching people who had more experience than me, even sometimes people who have almost no experience. I see things in people that I think, geez, that's a great idea. And I try to learn that way. And frankly, it's the way I try to teach the people on my team as well. I try to model the things that I think would be useful for them to experience and to be like. I had a lot of really bad bosses in my life, and I had some really great ones too, but I've learned from all of them. So I think that experiential learning is really the thing to do. I read many years ago, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, for example. I remember the last one sharpen the saw. It's the one I'm the worst at, probably. <laughs> but yeah, I mostly learn by watching others. And I hope that the people who work with me uh, do some of that. The times that I've had the honor of serving on boards with you and watching you in action, I have found myself learning a lot, Joe, which is why I truly appreciate you taking the time to share some of your leadership background and experience with the partnering leadership community. Thank you so much, Joe Gardamal. Thanks, Mahana. And the feeling's mutual, by the way. So thank you. You've been listening to Partnering Leadership with your host, Mahan Tavakoli. For additional leadership insights and bonus content, visit us at partneringleadership.com.